real pleasure to be here this morning, and I always uh, look forward to the times where I can share from the Word this morning. Uh, looks like uh, we started to fill in a little bit since I first sat down. Uh, I know that I was uh, thinking, well, it doesn't look like there's going to be as many people here this morning, and I hope it's uh, due to the family camp and not the fact that I'm speaking. So I'm feeling much better now that, that things have filled in. Uh, please turn with me, if you will, to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be continuing our study in the Minor Prophets. As Chris mentioned last week, the Minor Prophets are not minor because of the content of what they have to say. It is merely because of the, the volume of what they have to say. They say less than the Major Prophets do. They say it more succinctly. Um, Turn with me to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is five short books from the New Testament. So if you reach Matthew, it's just five short books back and you'll reach Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a story that addresses a very important question to our faith. How is it that we can authentically and honestly believe in the God of love and mercy when we're surrounded by so much human tragedy? I read an article of the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City And it dealt directly with this question. Upstairs at the first Christian church where families awaited word of their loved ones, there was little talk of God. The chaplain began to help notify a family that a baby had died and the baby's grandparents were missing and presumed dead. It was, the chaplain said offhandedly, one of God's miracles that so many people survived. Then one of the uncles of the baby, a son of the two people who were missing, just almost got violent over the statement because he did not feel God's grace in the three loved ones who were dead. Then the article goes on to say, in the middle of the destruction that first terrible night, the chaplain remembers a deafening silence, and for the first time in his ministry, he asked the question, where was God? And it's this inevitable human question that Habakkuk struggles with. Where was God? How could God allow this to happen? Raynette Blesson, when she got home from China just this month ago with the step team, shared with me an experience that she had at a Chinese orphanage. And when she was in this orphanage, she stepped into a back room and there were three children that had been placed there to uh, by their parents to essentially starve to death because their parents didn't want them anymore and they didn't want them to be fed. And so I pick up in her journal, Lord, as I stroked one of the children's chest, as I felt his paper-thin skin and fragile body, I prayed, Lord, Lord, return. Return quickly. Bring your just kingdom. The child's hungry eyes never left my face. Lord, I ask you to come, and the child next to me died. Lord, you said you are the advocate of the widows and the orphans. You said you are the God of the helpless. Lord, when? Lord, why? And this is Habakkuk's essential question. He struggles with this. And there are two uh, contrary images that we have as Christians. One image is we have the image of the new heaven and the new earth. And this is very clear from Revelations 21. Don't turn to it. I'll, I'll read just a segment of that. Then I saw a new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, this is the, this is the image that the New Testament ends with. There's going to be a new heaven and earth. But there's also another image, and that's the world we live in. The world we live in is a world where in the last 45 years, we've fought 125 wars worldwide. 
with 40 million related deaths. It's a world where there are presently over 100 million children that are exploited for labor. It's a world where there's over 40 million refugees, and one out of every five people are so poor that their survival is at stake. We live in a world of human tragedy. Now, how can we believe, authentically, whole in our hearts, this first image of the new heaven and earth, when indeed we experience this world where we get the images from the cameras from Somalia, Rwanda, and Bosnia? How is it we can believe in light of the broken marriages? How is it we can believe when we see loved ones suffer and loved ones die? This is the the essential problem that Habakkuk struggles with. Habakkuk is a prophet and he's a contemporary of Jeremiah. He lives at the time, at the end of King Josiah's reign. And at that time, the moral reforms of King Josiah had begun to unravel. And they were moving towards a period of corruption, much like under King Manasseh. It was also a time where the Chaldean dynasty of Babylon was on the rise and their armies were seeing great victories and, and the Babylonian empire began to expand. And it's in this context that we begin the book of Habakkuk. We start in chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read the first four verses. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, that is the burden or pronouncement that Habakkuk received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? I, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. See, Habakkuk starts out here with a complaint. And he's very indignant, he's angry, and he's trying to come to terms with what's going on. There's violence and injustice. There's strife and conflict. The law is paralyzed. Essentially what we're seeing is a free-for-all here in Judah. The people are acting with total freedom, no self-command, no self-governing. And the result is that justice never prevails. As Michael Novak has said in his Templeton address, there cannot be a free society among citizens who habitually lie, who malinger, who cheat, who do not meet their responsibilities, who cannot be counted on, who shirk difficulties, who flout the law. It was this kind of free-for-all that characterized Judah at this time. And that's why we get this imagery of the righteous being hemmed in by the wicked. The wicked were the dominant force within society at the time, and society at the time was characterized by destruction, violence, strife, contention, lawlessness, and the perversion of justice. I remember when Laura and I had arrived in West Africa in Senegal, in the northern uh, part of Senegal. We were in Luga, and for a day we experienced this kind of lawlessness. There was a border skirmish on the border of Mauritania and Senegal, and two Senegalese farmers were killed. It got announced, and riots broke out all over the country because there was racial tension between the Mauritanians and the Senegalese. And the Senegalese... uh, there were mobs that were formed and they ransacked the kiosks or the small grocery stores of the Mauritanians. They tended to own most of the, these small kiosks. And as they did so, they would drag Mauritanians out, they would beat them, and they would just loot their, their shops until they were empty. And we saw people running by with sacks of sugar and flour on their shoulders. And it was just a total pandemonium. It was a day of lawlessness. And this is the kind of imagery we get, we get with uh, Habakkuk, that Judah was in a state of lawlessness. Violence and justice prevailed. 
And so Habakkuk becomes indignant. He becomes angry. Habakkuk is essentially opening his heart to God. He's being honest with no pretense of piety or being all together. He cries out to God. And Habakkuk is experiencing at this time a time of anguish and uncertainty concerning God. But that's okay. There's times that we need to struggle. It's a kind of honesty that we need. And, and Madeline LaEngle, uh, who wrote The Wrinkle in Time, writes this, Those who believe they believe in God without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. Habakkuk's struggle here is to know God's heart. And he's trying to figure things out. How can God, who is holy, intolerate injustice? God's struggle, um, Habakkuk's struggle here is out of the fact that he is engaged in the lives of people. He cares about what's going on. The injustice is causing pain, and he cares about what's going on. He's not indifferent. He's not apathetic. Perhaps a contemporary example we could draw from about indifference and, and apathy would, would easily be the church in Nazi Germany, where we saw many people who did turn their heads. There were people like Diedrich Bonhoeffer and many others that rose up and did care of what was going on. But as a whole, many people turned their heads. But instead of pointing our finger back at history, perhaps it is better that we ask ourselves the question, are we one of those who are engaged in the lives of others? Are we those who care? Are we indifferent? Are our hearts broken over the things that it breaks God's heart? This is where Habakkuk's struggle is. He is in the search to know God's heart. And so Habakkuk asks, how long will you ignore violence and destruction and injustice? And God answers Habakkuk. We see this answer in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you will not believe, even if you were told. He's going, God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. You're not going to believe it. It's going to blow you away. There's a combination of three Hebrew words that is used here to indicate the greatest degree of amazement. And Habakkuk's just not going to be able to believe what is said. What's the news? Well, we see in verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. Now, the Babylonians here is used in the NIV. Actually, Chaldeans is used in the NSAB. Uh, but they're essentially synonymous. The Chaldeans were the most politically and militarily influential ethnic group within Babylon. So we see that they are synonymous. But Chaldea was the nation among nations that Habakkuk was to look among for God's instrument of his judgment. And we see this description of the Chaldeans in verses 6 through 11. We see the kind of people they are and the kind of army they had. The Chaldean army uh, made their conquest with no mercy. We can see this in verse 11. They sweep past like the wind and they go on. That is, they exceed all limitations of cruelty and aggression. And they're characterized in verse 6 as ruthless and impetuous people. Now this Chaldean cruelty was really a result of the way the Chaldeans viewed themselves and the way that they viewed their world. We see this in verse 7 and verse 11. In verse 7 we read, They, that is the Chaldeans, are a law unto themselves and they promote their own honor. Or in the NIV, in a, uh, or in the NSAB, it says, Their justice and authority originate with themselves. And in verse 11, They whose strength is their God. 
See, the Chaldeans were essentially relativists. All truth and sense of morality originated with themselves. They established what was right. Justice and authority originated with themselves. Good and evil are whatever they wanted them to be. But this is directly contrary to a Christian worldview. We see that in a Christian worldview, there are absolutes. There are objective standards. And those objective standards are what we get from the Word of God. There is such a thing as justice, and justice originates with God. There is such a thing as good, and good originates with God. But according to the Chaldean view, justice and authority originated with themselves. And this has really become the dominant worldview of today. Michael Novak writes, One principle that today's intellectuals most passionately disseminate is relativism. For them, it is certain that there is no truth, only opinion. My opinion, your opinion. Novak goes on to spell out the consequence of such a belief system. But this, that is, believing there is no absolute truth, is to give Mussolini and Hitler what they could not vindicate by the most willful force of arms. To surrender the claims of truth upon humans is to surrender earth to thugs. It is to make a mockery of those who endured the agonies for truth at the hands of torturers. See, the natural consequence of no objective truth is a moral decline, and its fruits are violence, injustice, and tyranny. In contrast to the Chaldean worldview, we see from the psalmist, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, God's word is our truth. It's our standard for what is right and what is good and what is fruitful. And what is right and what is good for the Chaldeans originates with themselves. You see, the Chaldean thugs here are bent on violence and destruction. We see from history that they massacred inhabitants. They, uh, when they massacred uh, inhabitants as they conquered cities, they would do so by fire and sword and torture. They mutilated their prisoners, they executed children, and they threw babies against walls to kill them. And it was these kind of Chaldean thugs that God chooses to use as an instrument for his judgment. God has answered Habakkuk, but Habakkuk doesn't like the answer. And we read in verse 12 and 13, O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One, we will not die? O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? See, Habakkuk is trying to get down to the bottom of what is perplexing him here. How is it that God, who is holy, can use this brutal inhumanity of the Chaldeans, whose atrocities are worse than the evils of those that they are sent to punish? God is not fitting into Habakkuk's little theological box. His preconceived notion of God is really being turned upside down. And Habakkuk is having a very difficult time in letting God be God. So he essentially says, there must be a mistake here. God, you must not have enough information. Here, let me tell you about the Chaldeans, how evil they really are. And we get this description in verse 15 through 17. We see, starting in verse 15, this fisherman analogy, and it depicts the Chaldeans gathering up whole nations, plundering them, and bringing them under the yoke of Babylon. And then in verse 16, we read the phrase, burns incense to his dragnet. It was common for pagan nations of that time to pay divine tribute to their weapons. 
And this dragnet represents the military might of the Chaldeans. And so, essentially, he's saying they're paying honor to their own military might. And so, it's with these credentials of the Chaldeans that we read verse 17, where Habakkuk says, Is he, that is the Chaldeans, to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Or to paraphrase him, Would it not be more just... God to judge Babylon, who's conquering nations, who are oppressing people, than it is to judge Judah, who's just an inconsequential nation. Habakkuk's unable to reconcile the problem. He continues the struggle. Why, Lord, why? And so we see that he's going to watch and wait for God's, God to answer. We pick this up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Here he uses in verse 1 this analogy of a watchman sitting up on the, the uh, walls of the city it's so that the watchman can see from all directions. And the Hebrew word, word here denotes this idea that he's um, being spiritually prepared for listening to God. And then in verse 2 we see the phrase, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets. It's this idea that the revelation is to be made so plain that when the people hear it, They are to run out and they are to tell the people of Judah of their deliverance. God will come. He will judge Chaldea and they will be delivered. So God is reminding Habakkuk to hang in there. God's judgment of the Chaldeans will come. He will rescue them. And indeed we do see that the Medes and the Persians came to destroy Babylon. But the root here of Habakkuk's struggle is that he cannot believe God is really in control. Habakkuk is essentially saying if God were in control, he wouldn't allow all these injustices in Judah. And then he certainly wouldn't pick the Chaldeans to judge Judah. So Habakkuk cries out, can't you see what's going on down here? Can't you see what's going on? And then God answers him. And he does know what's going on. And he is in control. And see, although Babylon is seeming to prosper through their conquest, they're just being used as a vehicle or an instrument of God's judgment. We, we as people are limited to see the purpose that God has for our suffering. And so we yell out, Why, Lord? Why do you allow this to happen? I remember a month ago there were two New Tribes missionaries that I had heard about that uh, were martyred in Colombia. And... As I heard the story, I heard that they were their wives were there waiting for them to be released. One day away from being released, and the release never came. They found them shot to death and in shallow graves. Tim Van Dyke left five children, and Steve Welsh left five, uh, three children. Why, Lord? Why do you allow this to happen? The answers may not come right away. But what we can know is that God does not cause evil, but he may just use and allow certain manifestations of evil to accomplish his own purpose, his own good purpose. But in this struggle, we must let God be God. We must not try to conform him to our own preconceived notions. 
Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, expresses this in a poem entitled, Had I Been Joseph's Mother. Had I been Joseph's mother, had I prayed protection from his brothers. Keep God, keep, uh, God keep him safe, so he's so young, so different from the others. Mercifully, she never knew there would be slavery in prison too. Had I been Daniel's mother, I should have pled, Give victory, this Babylonian horde, godless and cruel. Don't let them take him captive. Better dead, Almighty Lord. Had I been Mary, oh, had I been she, I would have cried as never mother cried, Anything, O God, anything but crucified. With such prayers important, my infinite wisdom would assail. Infinite wisdom, God, how fortunate. Infinite wisdom should prevail. See, we cannot always see God's purpose for the suffering we go through. But he does bring all things to good. Sometimes it's difficult to believe he's in control. I remember when Laura and I first moved to Indonesia... We knew no Indonesian whatsoever. We were plopped down in one of the most populated places in the world, Bandung, West Java, Indonesia, and none of our neighbors knew English. We didn't know Indonesian. It was one of the most lonely, one of the hardest periods of my life. It was a really hard year for me. I remember that I made so many cultural and language blunders that it became part of my daily routine. Um, one time, I remember the, that I was... Uh, I was meeting with this uh, principal from a school and I called him a coconut head rather than a principal. Um, I remember the time where I was in front of a church and they had asked me to pray and so I said, instead of saying, let us pray together, I said, let us sin together. Um, these, are, these are very major cultural fupas. Um, but, you know, God really used that time of humiliation and that time of growth in that, in that first year there in Indonesia. In fact, some of the closest relationships that uh, Laura and I have today are from that first year in Indonesia. God, how fortunate, infinite wisdom should prevail. And then we reach uh, verse 4 in chapter 2. And this is a pivotal verse of this entire book where God unveils his message of consolation and hope. See, we read in verse 4, See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. You see, God's purpose for judgment is not to destroy, but to give life, to save. He contrasts those who are puffed up, or the Chaldeans, with the righteous that will live by faith. God's salvation is given to those who live by faith. Actually, in Hebrew, there is no word for faith, but the word denotes this faithfulness. It's an active and lived out faith. And people with that kind of faith will be saved. Conversely, those who do not live by faith in God live by faith in themselves, as did the Chaldeans. And Nebuchadnezzar says, has once, was once boasted, is not this the great Babylon by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? See, it's this kind of pride and arrogance that leads to the judgment of Chaldea, to their own destruction. And we see this judgment in verses 6 through 20. There's a taunting proverb that's given to us. And it's essentially a series of five woes that are depicting the consequences of the inhumanity of the acts of the Chaldeans. There are things like extortion and plundering of nations, unjust gain, plotting the ruin of people. Uh, building a city with bloodshed, debauchery, violence, and idolatry. These are the kinds of things that led to their judgment. And then at the end of this very descriptive and powerful account of God's judgment, 
we see this incredible transformation of Habakkuk's heart. And it starts in chapter 3. Habakkuk has struggled with God. He's been questioning God. And now we see that he comes to terms. Somehow through this process of an open, honest struggle with God, Habakkuk realizes that God's in control. God is God no matter what we conceive him to be. And he stands in awe. In chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy, Mount, uh, the Holy One from Mount Paran. In verse 3, we see that God is both holy, He cannot tolerate sin, and He is merciful. The term Holy One is from the Hebrew word Eloah, and it refers to God as being the Holy One who cannot tolerate sin. God will judge all sin, whether it be in Judah, whether it be from the Babylonians. But Habakkuk also sees God is full of mercy and full of grace in this. He recalls the places of Taman and Mount Paran, which are a region where God entered into his covenant with Israel in order to deliver Israel. He said, I promise you will be delivered. And this is the imagery we have. We already have heard from chapter 2, verse 4, that we just read, the righteous will live. And in chapter 3, in verse uh, 13, we also see you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You see, God's judgment and his mercy go hand in hand. Judgment without mercy is despair, and mercy without judgment is the tyranny of sin. See, raising children will give you a good idea of what this means. Uh, I know that my first year, uh, my one-year-old, Luke, he's uh, quite out of control at times. I know that if I did not, or Laura did not, apply discipline at times, that he would have food thrown all over when when he eats. However, if we do apply discipline, then he does respond. On the other hand, if we never uh, had shown Luke mercy, he would never come to know mercy. He would never come to know love. So God's judgment comes because he is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. But he comes to deliver his people because of his love and because of his mercy. We see this picture in verses 5 through 15 in chapter 3, where we get this picture of God's deliverance of his people, that God will judge the Chaldeans. The first picture is one where God is delivering his people from Egypt. We read terms like plague and pestilence in verse 5, and victorious chariots in verse 8, and lifted its waves on high in verse 10. These are all images of the people, uh, of the Hebrews being rescued from Egypt. And the second picture we get is from verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in the heavens. See, God is intervening on Joshua's behalf so that the the armies of Israel would be victorious over the Amorites. Habakkuk summarizes this image of delivery in verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Stripped him from head to foot refers to the complete devastation and judgment of Babylon. But God will completely deliver Judah. And the image here is very clear all the way through verse 15. But at the end of verse 15, we don't see a celebration. We almost sense as we begin verse 16, 
we almost sense the sober silence as Habakkuk remembers that these cruel and impetuous Chaldeans will be used as an instrument to judge Judah. We read in 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. You see, the fear of God's judgment pervades his whole body, his heart, his lips, his bones, his legs. The moment of truth for Habakkuk has arrived. He's at the crossroads. Habakkuk has cried out to God, Where are you, God? Is your kingdom really true? And it's the same authentic question that we face. How do we affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord and at the same time own the suffering around us? It's a question that we can't hurry through. It's a question that's important to our own emotional and spiritual wholeness. Habakkuk struggled with this question. And at the end of the story, we read in verse 17, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, this will be the condition of Judah after the Chaldean conquest. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Somehow in this process of an open, honest struggle with God, Habakkuk has come to the point where he can own the pain and suffering and at the same time affirm the sovereignty of God. God is in control. You see, we tend to think that when, when we're in the midst of unjust circumstances, we can rejoice after those circumstances have been changed. God's made them better. But that's not what we see in verse 17. This is not the case with Habakkuk. We see that the fig tree doesn't bud. There's no grapes on the vines. The fields produce no food. There's no sheep, no cattle. The conditions are worse than ever. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. It's easy for us to rejoice when everything's looking up, but can we rejoice when our circumstances turn sour and ugly? How do we rejoice then? Jim Reepsom of Pulse Magazine writes, The paradox of rejoicing in the cross could be the explosive ingredient the church needs when we strategize about reaching people who've never heard or understood the gospel. On the front lines, in the mission boardrooms, and in church mission committees, It's easy to rejoice when good reports come flooding in by the truckloads. But what do we do when the harvest is sparse or non-existent? Can we authentically trust God is at work in the midst of a lost and dying world? Can we rejoice like Habakkuk did? Can we rejoice in the Lord in the midst of the suffering? In her book, uh, Evidence Not Seen, Darlene Diebler uh, describes her experience of torment in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp in World War II and after months of sickness and torture and solitary confinement, she's getting weaker and weaker. And we pick up the story where she's reaching up, she's lifting herself up above her door so she can see out of her cell. And she sees out beyond the courtyard and, and she can see the fence. And she sees bunches of bananas being passed through this fence to another prisoner. No guard can see it, their backs are turned. And then we pick up her story. I dropped to the floor of my cell, exhausted from my efforts. I shook all over. Worse still, I began to crave bananas. Everything in me wanted one. I could see them. I could smell them. I could taste them. I got down on my knees and said, Lord, I'm not asking you for a whole bunch of bananas. I just want one banana. I looked up and pleaded, Lord, just one banana. Then I began to rationalize, how could God possibly get me one banana through this prison cell? 
Then two weeks later, expecting to be uh, interrogated and beat it again, she hears the guards coming. The door flies open, and the guard walks in, lays bananas at her feet. I sat down in stunned silence, she says, and I counted them. There were 92 bananas. In all my spiritual experience, I've never known such shame before the Lord. I pushed the bananas into the corner and wept. Lord, forgive me. I'm so ashamed. I couldn't trust you enough to get me one banana. Just look at them. There's almost a hundred. Though the image before us, you see, is one of devastation. We live in a world of vast spiritual and physical poverty. And we may experience broken marriages. We may experience the loss of a job or we must. We may have to see a loved one suffer from a very serious illness. We may see a loved one die. We can somehow, with this picture of devastation, we can somehow, in an open, honest struggle with God, believe that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and that He will deliver us. You see, when we cry out, and we think God can't get us just one banana, He will end up giving us 92. The image of devastation is not the final word. The image that we have that is the final word is a new heaven and a new earth. God is in control. He loves us. And as we read in verse 19, through the strength of God, He will enable us to go on the heights. That is, there will be ultimate triumph of God's people over all the oppression of the world. The heights can be thought of as the new heaven and earth, or the kingdom of God in its fulfillment. And this is the image God gives us so that we can have the ultimate hope of His salvation, that we can have this hope in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our painful circumstances. This is not just pie in the sky because He says He enables us to go on in the here and now by His strength in the midst of the pain and struggling. In the Solitary confinement, Darlene Diebler said she often remembered Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There are two important things that we can draw from the story of Habakkuk. On the one hand, we need to struggle like Habakkuk did. We need to feel his pain. We need to feel the injustice and the struggles of those around us. We need not to retreat into indifference, but we need to engage in the lives of those around us. We need to pray that God would break our own hearts with the things that break his own. Yet on the other hand, we still need to be able to believe that it's not better circumstances that we need, but we need a clearer vision of God and who he is. We need a clearer vision of his hope. So that in the midst of the image of this hurting world, we can authentically believe God and we can authentically believe in this image of a new heaven and earth that it is his final word where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we confess that oftentimes we do retreat into indifference that uh, we find our comfort more important than those around us. It's easy to do. And we confess, Lord, that we need you, Lord, to remind us. We need you to break our heart with the things that break your own. Lord, we need this image of a new heaven and earth before us. 
we need to remember your salvation and how you continue to enable us to go on in the midst of pain and suffering. Lord, we thank you for your love and kindness towards us. And we pray in your name. Amen.